Hello and welcome to the Mindfulness for Learning podcast. Sophie Whippy is the founder of NAVE. On her website, thisisnave.com, it states, Sophie's passion emerged from necessity, the rightful need for women to be informed and supported through all of life's important milestones. But that was definitely the spark of what later became NAVE, that realisation that actually a lot of people don't have any support or or much information around what's happening to their bodies, to their emotional selves, to them spiritually, to them sexually. Sophie kindly agreed to share her expertise about women's health, transitions and sex education with Mindfulness for Learning. This episode is full of good advice for educators and parents regarding women's health and how it's closely linked with the relationship and sex education teaching in schools and at home. If we want children to engage and young people to engage in these teachings, they need to be current and relevant to their lived experiences. Not updating a curriculum for 10 years is absolutely disgraceful. If you're an educator or a parent finding this content difficult to share with children, then keep listening. Children need to be able to label their own anatomy because if they can't, then it adds more secrecy to something that has probably already been told, you know, they've probably already been told to keep this a secret. Sophie is full of practical ideas. She also shares with me a few details about her upcoming project, The Matter App, a sex education app for parents and educators. So watch this space. So here she is chatting women, the patriarchy and sex education. Sophie Whippy, welcome. Sophie Whippy, it's been too long. Welcome to the Mindfulness for Learning podcast. Oh, thank you so much. It's great to be here. Really, really nice to have you. I know Sophie from back in our 20s when we followed around <laughs> New York and partied too hard. But our times have changed, we're now grown and have learned a plenty. So we meet today to talk about some more serious topics, um, and probably in a bit of a light-hearted way, but we chat women and sex education, a rather large task. Um, so I, I've been reading lots and lots over my 30s, basically, I think I came to the realisation that women actually have it really, really difficult. And one of the books I read was Difficult Women by Helen Lewis. And she says that people are complicated and making progress is complicated too. And today I want to try to explore what that means for us, looking at slow progress, the challenges we face and how we manage the huge task of just being a woman. And later in the episode, we're going to talk about teaching children and young people about sex ed, which, although it feels like a world away, is actually very closely linked to the well-being of women. But we'll come to that later. So just to, to unpick it, let's find out more about you, Sophie, and Nave, which is your company, um, which was founded in 2018 that offers support to women. Um, can you tell us a bit about who you are, your background, and how Nave came to be? Yeah, of course. So... Um, no, kind of came to be, I think, because I became a mother in my mid-20s. Um, when I was pregnant and, and through sort of giving birth and early parenting months and years, I didn't have much support around me. And that isn't to say that my partner wasn't supportive. He was incredible. But I didn't feel supported um in a more holistic way. And obviously at that time, you know, my this was my partner's first child as well. So we were both kind of going in blind through the whole experience. Um, none of my friends had had babies yet. I was, and still am years ahead of them in that respect with some of them. Um, and I just felt really kind of blind mm. to what was happening. I didn't really understand exactly what was happening to my body. I, I didn't know what to expect when becoming a mother. I had absolutely no idea of what that would be like. Yeah. Um, and I, I do sadly think that that is still the case for many 
people now nowadays you know yeah um but that was definitely the spark of what later became nave um was that realization that actually a lot of people don't have any support or or much information around what's happening to their bodies to their emotional selves to them spiritually to them sexually you know becoming a mother having a child doesn't just affect you for nine months and then you pop them out and you're back to normal or back to who you were prior you know Mm -hmm. it's such a huge transition um that I really feel that we need more support in that area so um a few years after having my eldest son uh, I was attending a, a pregnancy yoga teacher training and the teacher of this pregnancy yoga teacher training was a doula and she was teaching us all about antenatal education and I was still learning things three years after giving birth that I probably should have learned at least six months prior to giving birth. Mm. Um, um, and I remember her saying, you know, I, I'm a doula and I support people in birth. And I was like, oh my God, you're exactly what I needed at that time, but I'd never even heard about it. Yeah. Um, and that, again, that then sparked another interest of, well, maybe I should, maybe this is something I should do. You know, I just felt really passionate about it. And um, it really, yeah, it's just sparked that curiosity into that, world of of knowing that actually you can be a support person to someone giving birth without being a midwife yeah um, or without going through the sort of conventional routes of the NHS and you know uh, midwifery degree um so Nave was born from that I actually launched Nave about six months after giving birth to my second son um and had been working as a doula prior to that for a few years So supporting women and birthing people throughout their pregnancy, providing them with antenatal education um, and trying to create a network for them of support. So if someone is experiencing um, mental health difficulties during pregnancy or is experiencing back pain during pregnancy, Mm. finding a network of trusted practitioners that can support that one person, but having a central point of communication, i.e. through NAVE. Yeah. so that we're all communicating with each other and we're not just going blindly to one practitioner for one treatment and someone else for another treatment but there's no link up in between yeah yeah that community um, is so important isn't it I think that, like you were talking about the learning so much after you have a baby and thinking I wish I knew that I wish I had that person in my life I wish I had that group of people back then but mm. it's too late coming out the other end why how can that change? How can we, we intervene earlier and get and help women earlier and get them to know what's out there for them? Well, I think that, I mean, this is partly why I went into sex education, which, as you said, it sounds like a, right. really, like a world away. But actually, you know, I, I was attending labours and the person giving birth, the woman, didn't know the difference between a vulva and a vagina. Yeah. And, you know, or, for example, the partner was like, oh, I'm going to be up at the top end. I don't want to see what's going on down there. And it's this kind of, yeah. you know, it's genuinely, this is, you know, and um, I think it's um, I think it's that kind of narrative that we absorb from such a young age. So deeply ingrained from our body. It is so deeply ingrained. And it's it's. um in TV, it's in, you know, even sort of tweeny TV shows, like, oh, you know, childbirth, ugh, private parts. And, 
Yeah. And actually, we, we are taught very subconsciously, but we absorb it all from such a young age to be embarrassed, to disconnect, to not use proper terminology, to not actually understand our bodies. Yeah. But when you do something like give birth, the most empowering thing you can do for yourself is to understand your body. Mm. Um, because if we don't understand, we go into a place of fear. Yeah. And when we're in a place of fear, we're actually telling our body that we're not safe and it's not safe to do this. And that's where potential complications can arise. It's interesting, this and, idea of, of this, this deeply ingrained message that we're giving women. And I'm very open with my children. I always have been. They, we use the right body part names. We, you know, they've seen me remove a tampon. Like they, you know, they've always yeah. in the toilet with you, children. I've never been embarrassed about it. You know, I <laughs> ask my son to go get me a tampon sometimes, or can you get me my period pants, please? You know, they yeah. things that yeah. probably the grandparents would just be so squeamish at the idea of. The other day, uh, an advert came on in the middle of the football that was for dryness during menopause. And my daughter, who is five, turned around and said to me, that is really inappropriate for young children. And I just could not believe it because I am so open. I talk about menopause and hormones and, and I'm not embarrassed mm. about it. And I think, where what, what, where has that come from? That is how big it is. That's how huge. It's bigger than their parents who teach them every single day that those things are not embarrassing. Where, yeah, where are those messages coming from? Absolutely. And I think, to be honest, I think they come from a million and one places every single day. And it's so subtle and so um, almost non-consequential that a lot of people don't even realise it. Mm. Um, it could be from a grandparent or a, a friend's mum using the word inappropriate when it comes to something to do with the body or, oh, we don't say that. Or, yeah. um, you know, it, it could be from a school teacher telling a child off for using the word penis in class. You know, yeah. it's it's so it's these tiny, tiny little building blocks that actually children are sponges in every way, which is amazing because they pick up languages and, you know, their their brains are just so um, there's so much neural plasticity that they are learning all the time. Yeah. But that also means that they're absorbing all of these unconscious uh, sort of, in my opinion, outdated ways of thinking about bodies and body parts mm. and 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 life that we all go through. There is not one human on this planet that hasn't been through puberty or won't go through puberty or, you know, have a period or get an erection or or maybe give birth, you know? Yeah. But, and so why is there so much taboo when we talk about it? it, it for me, it just absolutely doesn't make sense. And, yeah. You know, there's a level of when it's appropriate and when it's not, and I understand that. And speaking to children specifically in a, with appropriate language in an appropriate way, depending on their age. But it really does start from the moment, you know, a, a two-year-old, for example, like I have two boys. Yeah. Um, and they are, con well, they, my eldest now isn't, but he was when he was younger, just constantly tugging on his penis. Yeah. And what, what would be, um, I think, commonplace in many other households and definitely older generations is to say you know don't do that we don't touch our penis you know we don't touch yeah. our women put it away but actually it's completely normal it's part of development yeah but it's a learning the, about the kind of shame they are. exactly and sensation and and they're you know it's no different to them scratching their arm at that age yeah um but it's that kind of languaging and that the the 
almost like micro shaming yeah <laughs> that then leads a five-year-old to say oh well, that's inappropriate because it's talking about an intimate part of someone's life yeah you know? yeah um, we Let's um, take a step back out and look at, I mean, writer and campaigner Caroline Criado Perez says that seeing men as the human default is fundamental to the structure of human society. So when we go through life as a woman, there are many stages where there are huge gaps in terms of data and understanding and support. And because so many of the decisions being made are by people who are not experiencing life as we know it, it feels like mm. every time we've reached those points... It, it becomes really tough. But Sophie, when you reach those points, it seems like you have a really proactive response. So, you know, creating stretch, creating nave, um, going into sex ed, and we'll talk about it later, but your matter app. Um, can you talk about the women and our need to sort things out for ourselves due to the lack of services and knowledge that's available oh. to us? Yeah, I mean, it just sounds tiring just saying it, doesn't it? It's, like, <laughs> it's exhausting. Oh, it's so exhausting. Um, I mean, I think, you you know, you've nailed it. We, women's health, for this conversation specifically, it isn't invested in as heavily as men's health, and men are the default. You know, they, they are the default for most vaccine trials, for example, because mm. women are too complicated because of our hormonal cycles. Um, never mind the fact that 50% of the population is or is born with a uterus or, or you know, however you may identify after that. Yeah. Um, it's just such a huge, it's such a huge issue that I believe, sadly, will continue to set women, people with uteruses back for another hundred or so years. Yeah. This is represented in the gender pay gap. I think the gender pay gap has actually now gone back 50 years so we're now 150 oh. years away from reaching uh, gender equality within the workplace yeah um but if you look at things you know even seat belts they're tested on men male mannequins um that you know they're not designed for women and, and our height and our body proportions and there are bodies that are making progress to try to change this in in whatever uh sort of aspect you want to look at it whether it's education whether it's reproductive health whether it's um I don't know <laughs> trials for seatbelt safety mm. but it's it, it's literally one step one foot in front of the other mm. um and I think that's why there are so many incredible people that are trying to change that in in small ways you know with Nave, I've reached maybe hundreds maybe thousands of of women or people that have given birth um and I know of many other doulas, many other birth educators, sex educators that are also doing that on this sort of micro scale. Yeah. It feels like you can't reach enough people in in enough time. And and I think, you know, I I can't not try to help or try to educate in mm. any conversation, which can be massively socially awkward when you're at things like dinner parties and you call someone out <laughs> for um, <laughs> anything. But, you know, um, but if enough people are doing these, then eventually there will be a, a shift, right? There will be a tidal shift. Yeah. Um, when you talk about calling people out... We just all have out, to keep plugging on. How, how, yeah. Can you give us an example of, of a time that that's happened? Or, or just, a, you know, <laughs> or what do we need to be doing day to day in terms of calling people well, out? 
I think it's I, I think it's dependent on where you feel comfortable and and also the the manner in which you want to do it. Yeah. I um am really passionate about inclusive language and um sort of trauma informed language. Yeah. Um and that can be applicable to identity gender identity or it could be applicable to birth trauma. For example, um let's have a think, you know, did you have a natural birth? Did you give birth normally? <laughs> even though those questions, yeah, I know, even though those questions may be either not thought out at all or well intended. Yeah. Um, actually, the word natural or normal may hold so much for someone else that it could be shaming them. Yeah. So it's, it's saying, well, actually, you know, what is natural? What is normal? Could we just say, did you give birth vaginally? Did you know how was your birth experience? Do we even need to ask people these questions? Yeah, um, why is it important? You know, yeah, in that why, way, why? Yeah. Why does it matter? And but then on the on the other hand, you have often people say things like, "Well, as long as you know, as long as you and baby are happy and safe now, it doesn't really matter." Right. But it does matter, right? You know? Yeah, and and that's another huge thing. So many um, people will have postnatal depression or postpartum or a perinatal mood disorder after giving birth mm. due to an event that they found traumatic. It may not have been traumatic to someone else, but to them, it, it may have been. Yeah. And it's it's giving people the right to their own experience without trying to take it away or well, because then that, use that language that belittles it. Right? So, because before yeah. we were saying, why is it important? But then to some people that is important. I guess it's that flexibility for individual experience. Exactly. But also it, it's... If I said to someone, you know, did you give birth normally? Did you give birth naturally? Mm. And someone actually ended up having a cesarean section. Maybe that was an elective cesarean section. Maybe they chose to do that, mm. which is great. They've made an informed decision. That's totally fine, you know. Yeah. But by me using the word natural, it implies that what they've done is not natural or it's not normal. Yeah. Which yeah. has instantly got that negative connotation. Um so there needs to be room for people to, to just be themselves. But I think it's so important when we speak to people around things like sex, birth, parenthood, that we use language that doesn't, um, well, it's almost like clean language. We're not implying something is or isn't a certain way. Yeah. You know? I, I think people get scared about language. And I, and I, you know, I quite often talk to my dad about this because he's obviously from a generation where language, I mean, language changes all the time. But obviously there's been mm. a huge shift. And I think this idea that, oh, this cancel culture, it's scary. You know, we can't say anything anymore. That's my mm. dad's generation. And what I try to explain to him is that when people call you out, dad, when you're, you know, people call me out, I'm still learning. I will, exactly. I'm sure I would listen back to all my podcast episodes. I was just thinking then I've got a podcast episode about giving birth. I've probably used naturally. I, you know, we all do it. The important yeah. part is that we learn from it and we go, okay, that's not okay anymore. That's made somebody feel that way. I will do all I can to not use that language and to use different language and to try, yeah. you know, it's just a bit tolerance overall, isn't it? Yeah, and I think that's the thing, you know, that, and I, I totally agree. There is so much fear around saying the wrong thing, mm. especially, you know, if it comes to um, childbirth, when it comes to gender, when it comes to race. There's yeah. so much uh, fear around using the wrong language, but equally we are all learning. Yeah. And as long as you are open to that learning and open to someone else's experience other than your own, mm. 
then you know it's it's going in with that perspective that will minimize the harm or potentially not do harm even when you're not using a terminology or a language that that lands for someone for that person for someone else yeah yeah it's it's okay um, to make mistakes right we're not all perfect yeah. we're not perfect but it's being open to that idea that we can improve and, and get better and try harder i guess yeah yeah and and it's the intention that that's behind the language we're using you know yeah if you go in with good intentions and, and open intentions then the yeah. damage if any would be minimal yeah thinking about you know what i was talking about earlier in our 20s and how we we we've entered our 30s now late 30s for me um <laughs> and you know being a middle-aged woman i know Kathy moran's got her book more than a woman which talks about the challenges that you face as a middle-aged woman and how mm. we think in our 20s well when we get to our 30s we'll have it sorted you know it will all mm. it will all fall into place and we think we'll get through a complex <laughs> part of our life only to be met with another. Um, yeah. I know from from your uh, from social, and I know you did a. I think it's called "This Is the Gather," or is that is that the right name? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Transitions launched. Yeah. Yeah, and can you explain a bit about transitions and what you mean by that, and explore kind of the understanding mm. behind transitions? I think as um, women or people with uteruses, but in the context of the talk that I gave for This Is The Gather, which is a, a group that a friend of mine has started to launch down in Brighton. Um, the transitions that we move through are typically menarche, you know, first period, coming of age. Then we move through our adolescence and get to an age whether you choose to have children or not we get to an age where our body is is geared up to do that hormonally mm. um and for for some people you know you then go through pregnancy you then go through childbirth and then you're in another phase of of motherhood or parenthood um at the end of that we we then have you know perimenopause into menopause mm. and all of these transitions, in my opinion, have a few similar threads. One being that they are not talked about enough yeah. <laughs> um, and that they are often sort of pushed to the side. You know, oh, you're doing, yeah, yeah, fine. You're, you've had your period or oh, you need a tampon, put it up your sleeve as you walk through the office or, you know, that there's, <laughs> there's still this kind of, we've all done it, right? Uh, yeah, like, do you know what I was I, just thinking? I still... The other day I went to get from my bag and put it in my pocket really discreetly. Yeah. Which is so out of character for me. But it's everyone. Yeah, I just feel like everyone's going to look at me. But how crazy is that? Exactly. No, I mean, I, I was staying at a friend's house uh, this past weekend. And she was like, are you going to jump in the shower before we go? I was like, yeah, yeah, I just feel like I need to have a shower. And then her husband walked into the room. And, I, and this is me, where right? I just spent my morning talking to a group of year eights about um stis and contraception so yeah. this is <laughs> i talk about all of this stuff all of the time but when her husband walked into the room i put my hand like over my mouth to like shield what i was saying and i was like i just started my period uh, <laughs> like, what so am i funny. doing and i it's just crazy i mean but all of these transitions that that 50 of the population go through are met with a level of shame and secrecy and taboo yeah and but they are huge huge transitions or moments or whatever you want to call it that that many people go through in life that can completely redefine who we are as people 
it redefines how we interact with the world. They redefine how the world interacts with us, mm. you know? And to just kind of blow past them and to have a level of secrecy and and no ritual, no ceremony attached to them yeah. feels so, it just feels really sad, to be honest. Yeah. You know, in my class this morning, one of the year eights was like, oh, so if I take the pill, I probably won't have a period. Yay, that's amazing. Yeah. And I was like, well, why would you not want to have your period? Let's talk about that. Why is a period automatically a bad thing? Mm. And it's, we don't, we don't delve into these subjects. They're not spoken about enough. You know, mm. it, and that I, I apply that to pregnancy, to birth, and to menopause. Yeah, I went to the doctor. I went to my gynae a few weeks ago because I think I'm starting perimenopause. And to be honest, up until three or four years ago, I didn't even know there was a perimenopause. I thought you just went into menopause, yeah. and that was it. You know, um, and I went in and and I said, oh, I think I'm perimenopausal. This is what's going on, and she just looked at me and went, Nat, you're too young. And I was like, well, I know that I'm not too young. I'm maybe at the bottom end of the, of kind of what's considered normal. There's yeah. that word. Yeah. But I'm, but it, I could be. And she was like, nah, I'm sorry. I don't, I don't think you are. I was like, well, you haven't even looked at me. I'm having <laughs> You've exactly done no the same experience, you know? Sophie, which I think is fascinating that, I mean, I know you're younger than me, but we are going through an identical experience there as women trying, saying, please, you know, please help me. I'm going mm -hmm. through this thing. Mm -hmm. And just to be denied help flat, that's it. Nope, you're not going through yeah. it. Um, yeah. And I, I, there's this power imbalance that, and this is a power imbalance that we see in childbirth and definitely in, in adolescence as well, that when we walk into an, uh, an authoritative situation, when I, as a patient, mm. and I'm saying that with little like, <laughs> marks above it yeah. but when I when I walk into a medical establishment as a patient and I say this is what I'm experiencing in my body and then someone with a, in a position of authority says no that's not correct yeah what does that tell me it tells me that I don't know my body it tells me not to trust the signs and the things that my body is showing me yeah and we experience that as as children yeah. massively you know when we fall over and hurt our knees or you know, run into a glass door and we hurt ourselves and then a parent scoots us up and go, oh, no, no, you're fine, you're don't fine, cry. don't worry, you'll be fine, don't cry, <laughs> right? So we, we, we experience that as, as young children, but we also experience that as teenagers. Mm -hmm. I'm having really, really heavy periods. I'm really uncomfortable. It's making me sick. Oh, here, have a pill, fix it. Now you're fine. Yeah. You know? Um, and then in childbirth even, I've had friends say, you know, I'm, I'm in, I'm in established labor. I really need some help now. And they've gone, no, no, you've got hours ahead of you. Yeah. And given birth without any assistance and without the dad being in the room. Yeah. <laughs> I, I gave we birth in an assessment room because no one believed me that I was giving birth. Exactly. Right. <laughs> it's just, it's, just, it's like, well, not very, I have a huge amount of respect for, for all medical professionals who, who have dedicated their life to studying medicine and to helping other people. This is absolutely not a takedown. No. But where in our culture did we go so wrong that the person experiencing things in their own body mm. cannot be trusted? Yeah. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Where do um, you think that happened? Where, what, what point? Where do you... The patriarchy? I'm just like shaking my fist. <laughs> Um, it's my answer I to think, everything. That is, <laughs> yeah, I, I think I um, do my partner's I think, head in. 
<laughs> yeah. But that's okay. Women just historically, women historically aren't listened to. Yeah. They're silenced. We always have been. Yeah. You know, women were burned at the stake for, for being witches who were actually just midwives helping other women move through these massive transitions. Yeah. We aren't listened to. W women can go 10, or women or people with uteruses can go 10 plus years in excruciating pain to then be di diagnosed with endometriosis. Yeah. You know, it's it's crazy. People can have extreme perinatal mood disorders just to be told that they're not getting enough sleep. Yeah, or just take you know, a pill it, seems to be the answer to every woman's uh, problem. I mean, if one more problem. consultant tells me to go on the pill, you know, you go to the best yeah. consultant. I've just I've got to the point now where I'm just like typing to Google best female health worker <laughs> and I go and sit down yeah. and the first thing she says to me is take the pill I just want to cry have you tried the pill yeah yeah I know I mean but there's also you know that there's kind of there's a ripple effect on that in that the in the UK the health system is under a huge amount of stress and mm. people within it are, are underpaid they're under-resourced understaffed mm. and I totally appreciate that but I don't think that this culture of trying to minimize someone's experience is new you know, I remember being 12 for having bad periods or heavy periods, which is just a sign of a hormonal imbalance. It's a sign I need to change my diet. It's a sign that I may have some sort of reproductive health problem. Yeah. Or, you know, but at that time, it's like, here's the pill. Yeah. And it, 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 Cover so that, it up. this isn't a new problem. Exactly. That What's the easiest way to get rid of this issue? What's going to take the least resources, the least time? How can I move this along? Mm. Take the pill. Or in, in a case now, you're not perimenopausal. You must be really stressed. Yeah. You know? It's like, well, yeah. I am really stressed, but, yeah. but also <laughs> I think I'm perimenopausal. Yeah. Um, but these these are the huge transitions that 50% of the population will face or are facing. Mm. And they deserve more time they deserve more space they deserve more conversation they deserve more ceremony mm. will you be doing more and work I... on transitions like in, yeah, in terms of your um, talk yes yeah, so um diane who who founded this is the gather is launching a podcast and the friend who i gave the talk with um callie she's mm. based down in brighton um we will be recording a podcast episode together um unfortunately I couldn't make it due to some family stuff going on here but they also did the talk at both camp festivals this past summer oh amazing um, and Wilderness hosted it as well so the, you know these talks are happening and there are also some incredible people doing similar work in, or, or work in a, in a similar space you know yeah. but it it is kind of seeking them out it, mm. there isn't a I would say at the moment there aren't mainstream resources for these spaces um, or these transitions to be spoken about. But it, it's slowly, slowly happening. Well, if anyone's interested, I'll make sure that there's any links that Sophie sends over, I'll put in the email, um, the summary, sorry, the podcast summary. Thank you. Yeah. Um, when discussing feminism and the role of women, the older generations will often say at least progress is being made. I get met with that quite a lot. You know, it's, it's a lot better than what, what it was. And I recently yeah. saw someone explain, whilst getting quite emotional, I might add, that how with each generation we make progress, but the disparity is still so shocking that women of that generation can't quite believe that work actually has been done. It feels like nothing has been done. Um, mm. 
We're passing on better but still shocking life for women. What are we getting right for women now and what is the biggest challenge we face? I think the thing that we're getting right is that women are, are speaking up. I think that's that's something that we as as women are getting right is that we are being more vocal about the challenges that we face and the inequality that we face. Um, and I do think that social media has a lot to to play in that. Mm. Um, I, it, it almost pains me to say it because I really do have a love hate relationship with social media, but there is um it gives people a voice and it gives them a reach that historically people haven't had yeah um what do, did you ask what do i think we're getting wrong well what do, yeah the biggest challenge we face the like the, the kind of next thing on the list for us <laughs> <laughs> um where to start the next thing on the list i think it's to keep going in the way that we're going but you know we we Older generations speak about um, progress, but then you just need to look at the abortion laws that are being brought in um, that to show that actually we're kind of back in the 1960s in in some ways. Yeah. Um, and I think that's one of the biggest challenges is that actually when we, when we start to make progress, and I think this applies to all sort of societal change, when we start to make progress, you'll often people and new generations will relax into that safe space. Mm. we're not looking at what's happening we're not talking about the issues that were um and then it doesn't take much as we've seen for those things to be rolled back it's a dangerous place to be mm. to it's actually i mean you know that that place of comfort and and thinking that everything's fine is actually it's a hugely privileged place you know some um some people will never be in that space but it isn't a safe space you know, yeah. it's never done. Yeah, we're, we're never we're not we're not out the other side. There is so much work to be done in equality um, for everyone, not mm. just women. I want to talk um, about a bit yeah. more about social media. Um, for many mm. women, social media has provided a platform, like you say, to be seen and heard and come together. But on the other hand, it can be quite destructive with many women talking of like vile hatred coming their way. Do you think social yeah. media is a force for good for women or has it made things worse? I think on the whole, it's a force for good. Mm. <laughs> I think it has the potential to make things worse. It's one of the main things that I have a problem with with social media is that when there is an event or there is a, a sort of movement, um, everyone and anyone is posting, reposting, talking about things. Yeah. It lasts a week, maybe two. And then everyone goes back on with their day-to-day -day lives. And while social media is great at raising awareness um, and potentially reaching people that may not be hearing about certain events around the world or may not be feel that it applies to them to be interested or to be informed, it's, it can be amazing for that. But it doesn't count for much if it isn't followed up by actual action. Yeah. You know, it yeah. isn't enough to repost a story and be like, yeah, I'm with the, you know, I'm with Iran or pro-abortion or pro-choice. Yeah. If you're not doing anything to then back that up, are yeah. you donating? Are you reading? Are you having real life conversations? Are you speaking to people outside of your bubble? You know, because yeah. we have we have in life bubbles, but we also have social media bubbles. I see the same people reposting my stuff. I see the same people popping up on my feed every day. I know that like 95% of my following, and I have a very small following, but it's, it's, it's people 
that identify as female. Yeah. Um, so actually, if I just post something to my in my echo chamber, how much change am I actually creating? Or am I just almost paying it lip service? Yeah, yeah. If it's how not followed up by action. How do we step outside of that then? How do you... How do you make sure you're speaking to the people who are not in your echo chamber? I think by accessing news sources that you don't generally look at. Yeah. Um, speaking to, and, and it is that simple, speaking to someone that actually may not be aware of what's going on. Mm. In in a lot of the, a lot of the sort of work that I do, obviously it's, it's women's health issues. Yeah. So even just speaking to a man. <laughs> yeah. Speaking to a man of a different generation you know yeah like, conversations I, I, between generations are so important i know that some family members can find debate uncomfortable my family love yes. debate to be fair but it's but i think it's so important we can do it and be grown-ups about it it doesn't have to be an argument in in the same way yeah. that a negative experience it can be really like informative can't it for both parties yes absolutely definitely for both parties and then you're also trickling out of that echo chamber because then that one person may go and have a conversation with a group of their peer group mm. you know i had this really interesting conversation with so and so and actually we talked about this and i hadn't thought about it from that viewpoint or that perspective before yeah that's you know it, it's it's small but it's it can create change yeah. even if it's in change of opinion or perspective um, and then also, you know, sending donations to places, looking at how you can actually help people that are working in these areas, that are campaigning, that are, are doing work, aid efforts. You know, it sounds kind of obvious, but mm. a lot of people don't do it. We post and then we say, yeah, we're, we're fighting the good fight. And then, oh, my life is here, so I'm going to move on. Yeah. Yeah, it's yeah I think, it's to be honest, I think... Yeah, I think we're all guilty of it. And that isn't to shame anyone. I think everyone has done it at some point and then go, oh, God, actually, that's not that's not very helpful, is it? You know? Yeah. Um, yeah, so following it through. A bit of a switch now, but you've recently taken on the mammoth task of becoming a sex education teacher. Uh, what age are you teaching? So um, I have taught from age three to 16. Right, I'm so a really teaching... nice progression there. Yeah, yeah, that's, uh, that's yeah. going to be interesting to talk about. I think that this is the biggest thing for parents. I think knowing how to approach, you know, you say the word sex education, obviously being a primary school teacher, I have mm. created policy for schools and and done parent workshops on how we're teaching sex ed for, right up to year six. Um, but the look on some parents' face is just complete fear and please yeah. don't talk to my children about this stuff. Um, yeah. But we'll come to a bit a bit about parents later. But what have you come across that has shocked you the most in terms of the current education system and sex education? Oh, God. Well, I mean, the, the curriculum hadn't been reviewed in 10 years until mm. 2019. That I find absolutely shocking. If you think of all the progress that has been made and, and also just the terminology and the language and the the way that young people interact now mm. is different to how it was 10 years ago. Yeah. So if we want children to engage and young people to engage in these teachings, they need to be current and relevant to their lived experiences. Not updating a curriculum for 10 years is absolutely disgraceful. Yeah. So that's one thing that I think, you know, I mean, it has been updated now, but I would say it's still fairly loose and archaic. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's definitely one of the biggest challenges, I would say. Yeah. 
what and what's your opinion on the the current obviously it was statutory from 2020 what's your opinion yeah. on the current curriculum is there something in particular that you could pick out that you don't like or I think the, the, the curriculum is very loose in the way that it can be delivered mm. um so for example a school that I am teaching at but on a, a very sort of small limited hours contract um teaches about reproduction this is part of their RSHE, you know, relationship, sexual health education. And, it, and, and they are ticking the box on the curriculum, but they're teaching about reproduction via animals. And I'm, yeah. I'm sorry, but teaching a year eight, year seven, year nine, year 10, you know, teaching a secondary age child about sex through teach, you know, through animals, it's yeah. just not relevant. That's it actually isn't teaching them anything, but they're ticking the box. Yeah. And I think that I think that's one of the biggest problems is that so many schools aren't prioritizing this, probably because it isn't graded, it isn't marked. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and it isn't going to do anything for their school's statistics or Ofsted rating. And I think schools but are actually, terrified. They're, they're terrified of touching it. Yeah, they're, they're ill-equipped. This is yeah. the thing, they are ill-equipped. And there are some incredible charities in the UK um, that, that offer um, educators to come in for a day. But I really believe, and I know that many other sex educators believe this as well, this isn't a subject that can be taught in a one-off lesson. This is our life. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It, if, if we just, if we take away the kind of scary thing of actual sex, our self-esteem is bound up in our us, you know? Yeah. <laughs> self-esteem, identity. Our self-esteem and identity affect how we then relate to the opposite gender, the same gender, how we relate to the world. It, you can't untangle sex as an isolated thing and put it in one lesson once a year and say, well, there we go, we've done it, we've done our job, because actually you haven't done your job. You've not prepared or equipped these young people for the experiences that they may face, they may have. Well, in my experience as well, it's always taught in a, like a, a, a lump of, say, a week's lessons at the end. It's all, I, I hear people say, oh, it's at the end, and I'm not talking about my current school just to say, um, mm. But at the end of um, a term, when children are a bit older, we'll do it all in that last week. But it yeah. needs to be threaded through because otherwise yeah. they're not attaching it to real life experiences, are they? No, they're not. It's Again, it's isolating it. It's saying, well, this is this and, and the rest of it is really important because we learn it all year. Mm. <laughs> right? Yeah. You know, we have science three days a week, every week for the whole school year. But for, for this week or this day, we're going to learn about sex education and that's it, done. Learning's done. Um, yeah. And the, one of the other issues that I have with the current curriculum or the, or the guidance on the current, current curriculum, it, it states it must be LGBTQIA plus inclusive. Mm. Great. But that could be taught as a standalone lesson. So, again, it's othering. And let's say we're talking about contraception. Contraception, condoms are not useful for lesbians planning, you know, unless you're planning penis and vagina sex. Yeah. It's not all that relevant to them. Yeah. It might be at some point if they're using sex toys and exploring. But, yeah. you know, why? So then we're othering a certain demographic or, or group of people. Um, and again, it's not being threaded through. Yeah sex ed as an entire subject in its entirety in my opinion should be thread through kids education from as young as possible you know as, as young as the school 
resources where do we start? allow. What does the journey of sex ed look like through the ages in a, in a summary? What, what, let's start at age three. What might sex ed look like day to day? Talking about um, different family units, talking about how children are made, how babies are made, mm. looking at different families, different types of relationships. And consent being let's look the at biggest the way thing babies that you are being teach. Made. Let's think. Let's go yeah. back to that bit because that is huge for parents. I, yeah. you know, parents don't want to tell their children how babies are made. How? Yeah. How do you think it should be taught? What wording should be used at age three, four? I, I'm a really big fan of always using correct anatomical terms. Yeah. Um, so I would always use correct language. Mm. Um. Men have sperm in their testicles. Yeah. <laughs> Women have eggs in their ovaries. You know, and I usually use pictures, not um, real life pictures, but, yeah. you know, illustrated imagery of, or CGI imagery yeah. of um, internal reproductive body parts. A man, uh, his sperm travels out through the penis. If the penis is inside the female, that's where it can meet the, the egg. And sometimes that makes a baby. Yeah. But we also have, lesbians that have children have babies yeah you know sometimes they go to the doctor to get help sometimes women give birth through their vagina sometimes they have a doctor help them and the baby comes out through the stomach yeah it's using really clean simplified language because if you say to a three-year-old a penis goes into the vagina as an adult you know making sure they know this is something adults do this isn't what children do and um they're they're in a relationship, maybe they love each other, maybe it's a mummy and a daddy, you know, put it into a terminology that they understand. But when you use those words to a three-year-old, they're not in their head, they're not thinking, oh my God, they're having sex. Yeah, that's our projection. That's what we're thinking. Yeah. We're thinking, oh my God, I have to talk about sex. This is so uncomfortable. Oh my goodness, yeah. oh my goodness. Am I going to corrupt my child? Am I going to make them curious and try to do this? No. Children will absorb what they're ready to absorb and they'll let go of what they're not ready. Right. Yeah. If we give them very clean language, very, you know, without overcomplicating it, because that's what we do, I think, as adults and parents, when we feel uncomfortable, we use too many words to try to get ourselves out of a hole that feels really uncomfortable. Yeah. If we can use clean language, anatomically correct, this is what it is. It's biology. Why add shame and embarrassment and awkwardness to biology for a three-year-old? I just think it sounds so simple, the way you worded it. It was honest. It was simple. It was straight to the point. Like you say, there was no adult projection. This is the thing. We, we often think children are going to think or feel certain things because we feel mm. them. But we have to strip that away because they haven't lived the life that we've lived or had our experiences yet, right? No. No. And they don't see the same kind of media, TV show. They just don't. They don't. They're not. Their brains aren't the same as ours. They haven't yeah. seen or lived through what we have. So why make it more difficult for them? But what that does do for young children specifically... And, you know, threading in consent throughout all of that as well. It's really important. Mm. Um, It gives them the language to be able to label their own anatomy. And that's really important when you're looking at things, sadly, like child abuse and sexual abuse. Children need to be able to label their own anatomy because if they can't, then it adds more secrecy to something that is probably already been told. You know, they've probably already been told to keep this a secret. Yeah. You know, yeah, if, and I, I don't you've written an article on that as well, which I'll also put a link. Do you, mm. do you Nunu, which I, I really enjoy yeah. reading. Um, <laughs> I will put a link up to that because it is really interesting to to think about the language that you're using around children 
um, and yeah. just being like you say, using the correct the correct body parts is really important, and con- yeah. teaching about consent. Yes, yeah, that they have the right and the the autonomy to say yes or no. Yeah, to touch, to hug, to kisses to grandma, to all of that kind of stuff, you know. And it can be really tricky, especially with older generations. But yes. actually, who are we to tell anyone to go and hug anyone or kiss anyone? It's so true. I always you remember know, that as be a kid. Individual. Go and hug. Go and hug your uncle. Go and hug your nan. And I really yeah. didn't want to. This yeah. idea that we would thought it's crazy now to think about it. I mean, I just bathed my daughter before she went out, um, and I always ask before I wash her or touch her hair. Yeah. Or, and I went and got the flannel and rubbed her face with the flannel. And she said, you didn't ask me. And I just loved, yeah. I, I was so happy that she questioned me. Yeah. She felt okay about questioning my actions because it's her space. Yeah. And that's so yeah. important, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It's really important. And it's really powerful because if someone does go into their space, they are so much more likely to tell you if they have grown up knowing that it is their space, mm. it's their body. Yeah. With with little kids, I often use, you know, we do loads of drawing and it's loads of crafts and play and um, we use body bubbles. So they'll talk about who they let into their body bubble and when and why. Yeah. You know, nice. and it, it's, it's, it's breaking it down into very simplified ways of them understanding that this is my space. Yeah. And yeah. The limitations on overall education for women is a global issue. But when it comes to sex, even in, in parts of the world that are considered progressive pleasure is quite often left out and forgotten when talking about sex yeah. and the curriculum only mentions sex in terms of having a baby where do you stand yeah. on educating around pleasure one of the first things I always start with in my, in my classes is, you know when we're talking about contraception and stuff is when would you choose to have sex and what should sex be it mm. should be consensual and it should be fun and pleasurable yeah right that that's I, I mean, you asked me what my critiques were of the curriculum. Another critique <laughs> that I didn't say. But, you know, it, why are we not teaching? Why are we not teaching young people that sex can be and should be pleasurable? And that if it isn't, we can talk about it and work on it. Yeah. Well, it doesn't why really make because... sense to teach about contraception and not teach about pleasure, right? Because you know, my son not. worked out himself he was kind of like well why would you wear a condom or you know what well mm. because we have sex for yeah. reasons right <laughs> yeah yeah exactly exactly um yeah I mean it blows my mind that people that that it blows my mind that teenage girls still can't label their clitoris well not still can't but yeah. that they can't you know or, or to understand what it's there for it's we're the only mammal with a piece of anatomy that's purely for pleasure I'm sorry, but that's incredible. Yeah. You know, it should be included in the curriculum. I, I completely am pro talking about pleasure. I'm completely pro people experiencing pleasure. Like it, yeah. And I think that there's also this kind of patriarchal narrative that actually, you know, we, we often see sex as something that's for men's pleasure. Yeah. Men are usually depicted um, climaxing, reaching orgasm, um men male masturbation is openly talked about and joked about whereas female masturbation is often shied away from and can feel really awkward to talk about you know even amongst a group of women versus a group of men there Mm. is still that difference and and that's because we're not ever told that it's okay and we're not taught about it and you know what age do you think pleasure should come into teaching 
I would say from secondary school. Yeah. It's it's not about, it's not, I wouldn't say that it's like saying, oh, go off and explore how you can pleasure yourself or, you know, but again, it's that simplicity in language. Mm. What should, you know, if you're talking to young people about sex, you're talking to them about contraception. I also always open with, you know, well, what is sex? Yeah. Because sex isn't just penis and vagina. There are so many ways to have sex that don't involve and aren't used for reproduction. Yeah, we have to know about these ways, you know, a to keep ourselves safe to, to prevent STI transmission, all of this kind of stuff. And pleasure, those ways are all about pleasure. Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. So I think from from a young, you know, from from secondary school from year seven plus, it is part of the conversation whether people want to acknowledge it or not. Um, it's just whether it is literally whether teachers choose to acknowledge it. And I would quite confidently say 98% of teachers would not acknowledge it I think you're right I but, think I, I don't think I've come across I'm trying to think if I've come I haven't come across a teacher in my 14 year teaching history that enjoys think mm. you know knows about feels knowledgeable and confident about teaching sex ed mm. um, I think yeah. everyone dreads it you know I did teacher training on it in the last school that I worked in and everyone just they couldn't even look at me as I was talking about it. Yeah. They find it really, really hard. And everyone's got very, very different opinions on it. And I think that's really hard. Yeah. And and I think, you know, you're no you can't always please everyone. No. There will always be parents that feel really uncomfortable about this. There will always be teachers that feel really uncomfortable about it. But I think it's making a judgment call as adults that have a responsibility either to their children or to their students. Mm. How am I best preparing you and equipping you for teenage and adult life? Yeah. Am I doing the best I can possibly do? Because as an educator or as a guardian, that is our jobs. Mm. And whether we like it or not, whether we want to acknowledge it or not, and whatever our own conditioning is around sex and shame and pleasure and all of that, children and young people are in a world that we didn't grow up in yeah like 75 percent of children aged eight plus will have seen pornographic material whether intentionally or not yeah because of the devices they have access to because of the way that you know they can access things at the click of a finger they will have access to that Mm. and often at that age it is unintentional but that will leave them with questions and if we don't leave the door open to be able to have those open conversations yeah then where else do they turn? You know, they turn to unreliable sources. They turn to pornography. There seems a lot like a, there's a, I say a lot, there's more than there used to be in terms of teacher support and school support. You know, there's a, there's a few companies who will come in and teach it, sex ed, although mm. I am yet to see a school to employ any of these things due to budgets. And it, like you say, it doesn't come at the top, definitely. We've, you know, schools have got hundreds yeah. of things that they need to do before that, which obviously is wrong. Um but there's not much out there. My niece went to uh, my sister and asked a few questions and my sister felt that she couldn't answer them and yeah. asked me where she should go for help for parents. Yeah. And there isn't much out there for parents in particular. Have you got any advice no. about that? There, there isn't a great deal out there. Um, I am in the process of developing a sex education app which will be for children, young people, and their parents. They'll have different elements to it and different access points. Amazing. Um, but, but the idea is that it does follow the UK curriculum guidance with a couple of added treats like pleasure, Yeah. <laughs> um, depending on the age of the user, of course. Um, 
but you know that I'm, I'm creating it because there is a lack there is a lack of, of good spaces for for young people and and guardians to go yeah um one place that I would direct adults to at the moment or guardians you know the NSPCC has some great free courses it's it's quite my lad says quite stuffy in its delivery yeah but it is a place I often refer parents to watch sex education on Netflix yes if you have a teenager watch all of the seasons yeah. <laughs> because you will learn a lot but you'll also get a window into the terminology and the things that young people are facing today um, it's a resource that I use. There are some great lesson plans um, based on that series, and I use those resources in when I'm teaching secondary age children. Right. Um, there's also a really great website called amaze.org. Um, okay. And this is it's an American website. I can send you the link to it so you can include it in the resources. But it's got short two to three minute video clips um, that explore a whole array of subjects. Um, it's a good one for, for adults to, to have a look at. The, the videos are geared towards younger people, but young people don't access it in an easy way. You know, young people are often on their phones or their iPads. They're not often sat at a desktop Googling. Yeah. I don't know, STDs. So it, it, it has got good content, but I wouldn't say it's very easily accessible. Okay, brilliant. Well, we'll put links to all of those things um, on the episode summary, and we really look forward to to seeing the Matter app. I'm excited about that. I'll be using that with my thank children. You. Yeah, thank you. Can you tell us a bit about how you found running a business, being a woman, being a mum? How has it been for you? Oh, it's, quite, it's exhausting. <laughs> um, it's, I'm not, not going to lie, it's kind of tiring. Yeah. Um, but I would also say that actually becoming a mother um, has really fueled my fire. It's really given me a drive and a um, a passion for, for these subjects mm. um, and to to I mean it sounds really naff but to make the world a better place for, yeah. for young people you know I wish that I had the resources that I now have when I was a young person mm. you know I think we often are pulled towards things that we, we would have needed as younger people and um, I wish that I had access to this information or that I had someone that would come in and just talk to me really openly about all of this without any embarrassment or shame yeah um and I think becoming a mother and 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 becoming an adult and going through these experiences myself have really fueled my desire to create change or to create these spaces for other people yeah and I feel we're very um, lucky to to have you Sophie because you are very proactive um and I've seen that through through you know through our 20s and 30s you always have been and um we're really lucky to have people like you in the world so oh, thank, thank you. you so much. <laughs> How can people get in touch with you to um, and find you? Yep. So um, you can get in touch with me via my Instagram. My Instagram handle is just underscore Sophie Whippy. Um, I've changed it from Nays due to sort of launching the Matter app as well. So yeah, I'm trying to branch out over to that now. Um, yeah, through Instagram is usually the best way. Brilliant. And we'll put, like yeah. I said, we'll put everything on the episode summary. Thank you so much for sharing your expertise today. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. 
Thank you, Sophie. I'm so looking forward to seeing the Matter app. We all know as educators and parents that we welcome any kind of support when teaching such complex topics to children. Sophie has so much to offer, so do check her out on thisisnave.com and follow her on Instagram on at underscore Sophie Whippy. You can find out more about us at Mindfulness for Learning on at M for Learning on both Twitter and Instagram and see how we support educators and families at mindfulnessforlearning.com. Thanks for listening and see you next time.